We are continuing in the Gospel of Luke today. Uh, if you have one of our handy-dandy Luke Scripture journals with you, feel free to flick open to that. We're in Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, then there, there are an unbelievable number of them on that bench back there that you're more than welcome to borrow or take if you don't have a Bible. Um, yeah, but we are, we are today stepping into probably the most well-known of the parables of Jesus, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, is what it gets called quite popularly, uh, but uh, it's actually, actually got a few different names. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but first, I just wanted to quickly say, uh, stepping into it, I just realised as, as Jasmine was reading that, how confusing this would be if you were just hearing this passage out of the blue. You'd be like, what is this story about a father and two sons? What's going on here? And so the parables are stories that Jesus uses to explain a point. They are, they're like metaphors, essentially, or illustrations. Uh, pictures, word pictures, that describe something in the real world using something else. Uh, and I think this one is just about the greatest example of storytelling that I know of. Um, and it's also just about the most striking explanation of God's incredible grace that I'm aware of as well. Uh, I've, I've read this parable before lots of times and I've spoken on it, I think more than once. Uh, but, but every time I come back to the parable of the prodigal son, there's something more. There's still things for me to find and to grow in and, and things that, that wash over you again and challenge you again. I'm going to be dangerous and bend over again. <clears throat> um, uh, the story in this centers around a man who has two sons. Two sons. If you're used to a more formal experience of church, then I'm not sorry. This is just how we do it. Um, uh, a man who has two sons. Uh, the first son is the disobedient, sinful, and selfish son. Uh, and the second son is the moral and religious son. Uh, we're going we're gonna to give them a name each. We're going to call them rebel and religious. Okay? Uh, but really, there are two things that we need to see as we set out in this parable. Uh, First, these two sons represent the people who Jesus is talking to at the time. Uh, back, back at the start of that chapter, of start of Luke chapter 15, we get told that Jesus is speaking to his really interesting mix of a crowd. Uh, Luke writes this, he says, uh, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the rebels and the religious are the audience. You've got the tax collectors and the sinners on one hand, who are those who are drawing near to him, who are entering the kingdom of God, who are finding acceptance. And, and you've got the, the religious kind of elite of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, who are grumbling because Jesus is accepting these people. What's he doing? Uh, but the second thing that we need to see is that this parable doesn't just speak to those people <clears throat> who were there at the time. I'm convinced you can actually divide the world into these two categories. Uh, I realize that sounds a bit overly simplistic, but I think Jesus does it here masterfully. He artfully captures the whole of humanity in this parable. And like it or not, an honest examination of our lives would find that we all tend towards one of these two sides. So first, you have your rebels, right? The rebels are those who want to skip God 
to satisfy themselves with his stuff instead. God being the creator of everything, they want to get past God and get what he has to give them instead. Look at this with me. Uh, In this short yet powerful drama, Jesus casts the rebels as a younger son. He's the famous son in this parable, by the way. Uh, this uh, This son comes to the father and demands his part of the inheritance and demands it now. And this would have been, like, like this would be offensive today, but this would have been an unbelievable offense at the time. The original hearers would not have been particularly surprised if this story went something like this. One day, a son came to his father and said, Father, give me my part of the inheritance now. And the father said, you are not my son anymore. Get out. You're never welcome here ever again. The end. Happy ending, right? Like, lovely. Uh, but that's not what happens. The father gives him, astoundingly, the father gives him what he asks for. Now, understand, this is a costly thing that is being described. There's, there's enormous sacrifice in what's happening there. Imagine for a moment that you were the father of these two sons, or that you were the other son even, you know, who's staying and working on the farm. What happens when you liquidate half of the farm and give away the cash? Farmers here, what would happen? Yeah, you don't survive that usually, unless you're a really big farm, and even then you're going to have to sell off a bunch of machinery and hope for the best. Obviously, it makes things incredibly hard for those who are left behind. And yet at great cost to himself and great offence to himself, the father gives the rebel son what he wants. And days later, the son leaves. Not many days later. He goes as far as he can from his father and from his family and from his farm and he parties like there's no tomorrow. This is, this is the part that the parable gets its name from originally, right? You, you get a lot of people who think that prodigal means this, that it means rebellious or disobedient or, or, or a runaway. But fun fact, actually, this is an important fact, that's actually not what prodigal means. Do you know what prodigal means? Um, to be prodigal... You know, you might have heard the word, prodigal we don't use in society much. Um, prodigious is a word that we use a bit, uh, which comes from the same root. It means to be excessive, to be lavish. Uh, that's what we see. The son sets himself to what you would call lavish living or excessive living. He is the personification, if you will, of YOLO, if you know what that means. If you only live once. Uh, he, he sees the world as a chance to get what he wants and get it now. And, and that's the first group of people that Jesus is describing. One half of the world-ish has a tendency to deny God and get whatever I can of his stuff now. But then there's the religious, right? The, the religious, the, the older brother. The older brother is mentioned at the start, but only really features toward the end of the story. And on the surface, it would be really tempting for a lot of us, I think, to sympathize with this guy. He's not like his younger sibling. He has dutifully worked hard for his father his whole life. And because he works hard, he sees himself as deserving his part of the inheritance in good time. He sees himself as deserving what his father will give him. He sees himself as right with the father by merit of what he has done. And this guy, when the father goes to accept back in the other son, doesn't want a bar of it. 
You see, because he sees himself as self-justified, as self-righteous, he doesn't see any need for grace in his own life toward him, and so he sees no reason to be gracious to anyone else, to his brother. You know, we probably know this guy pretty well, I think. When we talk about the religious person here, understand, we're really not talking about uh, religion in the sense of worship of God, not biblically. We're talking about those who have a, a code that they live by at the end of the day, which means that they are the good people. They are those who are justified in their own eyes. So maybe this is the guy who says, I'm good. I'm good with God because I go to church every single week, most weeks. Maybe it's the person who says, I'm good. I don't steal. I don't murder. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't cheat on my tests. I don't do drugs. I live an upright life. Whatever it is, whatever your measure is, that's, that's what this guy is. He's the guy who says, I don't insert thing here or I do insert thing here and therefore I'm good. The religious person seeks to be justified through duty, you'd say. Now, my guess is that uh, you hear me talking about those two brothers and one of them you had a negative reaction towards and, and one of them you had a bit more of a positive reaction towards. One of them you thought, he seems all right, but, but the other you thought was a bit of a layabout. What an insensitive, selfish person. Or on the other hand, he was a bit of a hypocrite. What a selfish person. It's funny how they both have that in common, actually. Uh, but Jesus does something astounding. He presents the result for both of their actions, and both of them he presents in a really negative way. The younger son, he says, the, the, what's the end of the younger son's course of life, his, his actions, right? He ends himself in a, starving in a distant land is where the reckless living gets him. And the point is that all of the money, all of the stuff... All of the everything in all of creation that you could go to to satisfy yourself, to fill the gap, is, is, is not enough. It's eventually going to leave you empty and having not delivered what it promised. Those who try to satisfy with stuff find that eventually they starve for lack of what they really need. But then this would have been one of the shocks here for the original hearers, Jesus says that the older brother is no better off. You see what happened there at the end of the story. We're not doing this fully chronologically here. At the end of the story, the older brother is on the outside, reluctant to come in, un unwilling to come in, invited in just as much as his younger brother, but unwilling. He's gripped with anger at the father, at God, because he would invite back in the rebel younger brother he has no grace for his brother because he sees no need for grace in his own life. As this parable ends, Jesus intentionally makes it clear, actually, that the older brother is worse off in the end. He's on the outside. The religious is worse off. Those who try to justify with duty find themselves on the outer, hardened to grace toward others because they don't see their need for it themselves. And they do need it themselves. You see, it turns out that all of our moral self-justifying is actually what you might describe as utterly worthless. 
sorry if that breaks anything for anyone. Um, in God's eyes, we can't justify ourselves. Our standards will never meet his standard. And so both the religious and the rebels stand in equal need of God's grace. Now, in the, on the one hand, something we need to do there is to stop and to, and to genuinely consider and to ask ourselves, which of the two brothers am I? Feel free to make them into sisters if it makes it more relatable in your head. Don't cross it out in your Bible. Um, here are a few diagnostic questions for you. I know these are just ones that I scribbled down just to, just to help you think through this. Um, you know, to some extent, uh, we're going to find some of both of these guys in most of us, I think. Um, it's not, it's not fully one or the other. So we're looking more at where you tend than where you always land. But think about this. When you look at others, do you often find yourselves angry with hypocrites or with sinners? Now, rightly understood, they're both sinners. But, but do you get what I'm saying? Do, do the religious hypocrites bother you more? Is that what you find in your day-to-day -day life gets you goat up? Or do you find that uh, the, 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 the broken sinners of the world are the people who really bother you. You know, when someone uses God's name in vain or when someone steals from someone else or when, from, when someone does something harsh to someone and you think, oh, that's not fair. You know, is that what really gets you or is it, is it more of the religious people who seem to act like they've got it all together and you know it's a facade? Here's another one. If I asked you, what sets your life apart? Would your answers concern your good behaviour or your good stuff? Are you running from God? Or do you see yourself as having arrived? Now understand, for, for the Christians here, there's often the tendency we're just going to give the good Christian answer and be like, well, no, I see myself as saved by the grace of God. But if we're honest, there's times in our lives where we act like one of these two things is true rather than that. Here's one. If, if, a, if a rapist walked into church this morning, saved within the last week and sat down next to you, how would you feel about that? What would you be your emotional reaction to that? Here's another one. What do you run to in your quiet moments? To, to satisfy yourself. As you're thinking through all of these, you're just thinking, am I more of a rebel or more of a religious? <coughs> Where do I see myself? Where do I find myself justified? Where do I seek my satisfaction? But having wrestled with that, we must see at a deeper level what Jesus is saying here. All of us, on our own, would land ourselves away from God, starving, empty, bitter, hateful, and condemned by our own actions. Doesn't, doesn't this shatter our understandings of the world that we would apply? You see, it's really easy to look at the world from your side of this fence, the religious or the rebels, and to think that one side has it right, your side typically, uh, unless you're a particularly morose person, uh, that, but that if only that other side, that they would get it together... Uh, then, then we'd all be okay, right? Then the world would be a nice place. 
So if you're religious, you know, if you're the moral uprights, you look at the open sinners and you think, wow, they need to get right with God. Or, or worse still, wow, they don't deserve God. It's a good thing that people like, like me are around so that God's got something to work with. <laughs> we probably don't think it in so many words, understand. Um, if, if you're the rebels, the sinners, you, you look at the religious and you say, what a load of hypocrites. What a load of self-righteous stuck-ups. If that's what God's like, I don't want anything to do with him. They're the problem with the world. Their lack of honesty, their lack of authenticity is the problem with the world. You know, this happens within the church, understand. It's so easy for Christians to fall into the temptation of thinking, I've got it all together, I'm the good guy, I live a moral life, uh, a more moral life than the rest of the world. I don't do drugs. I don't steal. I give my money to those in need. I'm hospitable towards the poor. But those people out there, well, well, they need God. It's so easy for a Christian to fall into the same trap uh, as the older brother, particularly, I think, is what we tend towards often. And if you don't think it's you, maybe it's not. You know, maybe you do tend towards being the more, more the rebel. But, you know, do seriously ask yourself that question. Is there anyone in the world, let's broaden it, is there anyone in the world who, if they got saved this week and walked into church next week and sat down next to you next week and said, I've come to believe in Jesus this last week, who you would not be joyful about that moment for? Is there anyone who, if that happened, I would get upset about that? maybe even disgusted by that, maybe even scandalized by that. You know, that you would go, I don't think that person has really been saved. I don't think they could really be saved. That person who's always hated you, and you know they have. That person who always, always bullied you. That person that, or, or you know, make it broader, not someone local. That politician whose policies are so clearly wrong and so clearly hateful or, or the, you know, that rapist or that child molester or that murderer. If you find yourself saying, yes, I couldn't bear to see that person saved, then that's an area where you are the older brother. Not seeing your own need for grace and so unable to give it to a person who equally needs it to you. And we need to see what Jesus is saying because he levels the playing field utterly. In his parable of the two sons, Jesus makes it clear that naturally the lives and the attitudes of both sons put both sons on the outer. The runaway sinner cries out with his life, I don't need your rules, God. I don't need you, God. Just give me your stuff. And so he is naturally distant from God. The moral upright cries out with his life, I've kept all your rules, God. I don't need you, God. And I don't need your grace either for me or for anyone. So just give me your stuff in due time. And so he is naturally distant from God because neither have a relationship with him. But Jesus also actually reveals here the obstacles here that, that keep each of us from coming to God. And he cuts it down to two things, fear and pride. Uh, behind the fear and the pride that holds people from coming to God are these two terrible lies. Um, 
about who I am and who God is. For, for the rebel, the lie is that God really, deep down, hates me. He's going to make my life worse for me. He's going to punish me for all of my sin and he's going to make my life miserable and that's what it means to come to God. So I'm too afraid to come to him in repentance to trust him with my life because that's because it's going to ruin me. You know, that's why we see the rebel son prepare his speech, right? He's afraid of what he deserves when he comes back. And it's not so different for the older son, for the self-righteous, for the religious, for the, for the moral justifier. You see, the older son was too proud to go in. But at the root of the pride is the lie about God, that, that there isn't joy with God for me, there's just duty. God is a responsibility to be fulfilled, not a relationship to live in. And so thinking that he has God in debt to him, thinking that the purpose of it all is to serve in order to get, he misses the grace of God who gives what he could not deserve. But the incredible grace of God is on display here because God cries out with the life of Jesus, my love for you is greater than your failings. Come in. You'll be met, not with condemnation, but with joy. You won't lose the true treasure that you've been seeking your whole life to be filled with. You won't lose your joy. You'll find life in me. You'll find true life, true treasure, true fulfillment and joy in me. This parable has been mislabeled for forever. Let's just put it out there. We call this the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and, you know, it's in there. Uh, others seeking to be a little bit more accurate, I used this title just before, call it the parable of the two sons, because there's two sons. Right? But, but both of them really do miss what's central to this thing. You know, remember what prodigal means? Prodigal means excessive. Prodigal means lavish. And so the son is prodigal, but that's not what's central here. At its heart, this is the parable of the lavish, excessive, prodigal God. At the centre of the story is the father who lavishes love on both of his sons. Undeserved love, prodigious love. God doesn't wait for the rebel to return to him. Did you see it there? He runs to the sinner and goes out to the moral. Both the rebel and the religious are met by God seeking to bring them in. Do you see it in the story? That beautiful picture of God's longing, loving care for us. Before the rebel son returns, he spends forever coming up with a speech to tell the father to beg for a job so that he can stay there and eat the servant's food. And, oh, I've been so bad and horrible, but father, please accept me back as a, as a servant in your household. But the father is waiting for him. You know, did you notice that? He sees him when he's a long way off. He's been scouring the horizon for him. We actually get a little window into the heart of God there when Jesus says that, that he's moved with compassion when he sees him. The immediate reaction to God when he sees a sinner is love. Is compassion. You know, imagine it. An instant tear fills the eye of the father as he sees his son ready to return. Even when he's a long way off, the father 
runs to him. You know, it's, it's a bit undignified for the patriarch of a family, isn't it, this picture? Uh, that he, he's kind of, you know, he hoists up his robes and, and does his sprint down the driveway and, 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 and then he gets there uh, and tears running down his face and when he reaches his son, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. And the son tries to start his speech. Did you notice that? Uh, he's telling the father how unworthy he is. But as he speaks, the father interrupts him. Not to, not to tell him off. He's, he's making orders. He's, he's ordering to make preparations, not to punish, but to party. He calls out, give him my best robe. You, bring the robe. Bring the ring, get the fattened calf, kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. My son is back in every way possible. He plans to celebrate and to rejoice and to welcome him back. Why? Well, he says it, doesn't he? My son was dead, but now he's alive. When rebels and self-righteous people, all undeserving of God's love, all guilty of having discarded the creator just to have the creation slapping God in the face just to get his stuff. When they come back to God, his arms are open wide. They find welcome and joy in the presence of God. But actually, did you know, there's still a little bit of an unresolved tension here as we get to the end of the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, I mentioned that the younger brother leaving involved a cost. So does the prideful rejection of the older brother. You remember, the, the selling of the farm and the, and the giving of the money, there's always a debt there for everyone. And actually, when it comes down to it, from God's side of the equation, yeah, both of these rebels, the religious and the rebels, have disregarded God for his stuff in some way. Both have a debt to pay. Both are unable to pay it. So the tension is that the father's prodigious love doesn't necessarily pay the debt that is owed. Just by hugging and kissing, I mean. Slaughtering the fattened calf doesn't bring back what was lost. You know, it's a picture of all of us and it's a picture of our need for someone who can pay it for us. Who can make right what was wronged. You, don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't saying that actually God only loves you if you pay your debt first. The tension here is that we need the better, bigger brother. The better, bigger brother in this story that's implied in this story but doesn't appear in this story. You see, Jesus is what the older brother should have been. He's the genuinely righteous man, not the falsely religious man. He is the one who does deserve the father's love, who works genuinely uh, for his father and is genuinely deserving of blessing and honour and glory, the Bible tells us. And yet Jesus is the good older brother who dies to save his younger brothers, which is all of us in the end. This parable demands the love of triune God, of God the Father sending God the Son into the world to make his people right with him. And that's exactly the reality that it points to. So here, here, here are my closing challenges for you today. Maybe you've been 
running from God. Maybe you have been denying your need of him, trying to find your need fulfilled somewhere else. You know, hear the truth and believe you don't deserve the love of God. You don't deserve to be fulfilled or given life forever with him. Understand that? I say that as an equal. <laughs> I don't deserve it. <clears throat> but because in Jesus, God has personally paid your debt, the Father welcomes you with prodigal love, with lavish love. God isn't waiting to judge you. He's prepared a feast of joy for you. Turn away from the things you've tried to be filled with. Turn away from the bitterness and the self-justification. Turn away from sin and turn to God. Believe in Jesus and be saved. For, for the Christians here, what we need to do, and this, is, this, this doesn't just speak to someone who hasn't believed in Jesus. Um, we need to acknowledge that regardless of the transformation that God has effected in my life, since I was saved, I, will, I still tend toward being either an older brother or a younger brother, a religious person or a rebel. You know, if you say, well, I don't, I think I'm pretty good, you're an older brother, congratulations. And it's important that we see which one of those things, firstly, because we must always be reminded of what we are without God. We're a person in need of grace. If we don't see that, we'll stop being givers of grace and we'll become bitter and, and hateful. Second, we need to know which way we lean so that we can combat sin in our own lives. Now, this will inform what sort of sin we are personally tended towards. We are called to see our, our brokenness, see our sin and, and keep on running to God's open arms as our ongoing posture of our lives to help change us every day. Finally, and really this is an extension of what I've just said, we need to see which way we lean so that we are equipped to reach those who lean in the same direction. All of humanity split into these two categories. When you see yourself as a saved rebel or as a redeemed religious person, then you can honestly come alongside the rebels and the religious of this world who lean that same way and offer them the grace you've found as an equal, as a, as a, as a person who found undeserved prodigal grace from the lavish God. Why don't you pray with me now? Jesus, I want to come before you today and I think your people want to come before you today and say, we don't deserve you. You're so good to us. So lavish in your love towards everyone who comes to you. Lord, I pray, show us afresh how much we don't deserve you and how graciously brilliant you are towards us. You're so generous. You're so loving. You're so compassionate towards us. That you would even send your son to die in order to save us. Jesus, that you would come and die to save us. You're so good to us. 
We can, we can genuinely speak the words that we sung before. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. Thank you for your joy in what you're doing in us. We don't deserve your love, Lord, and Lord, but Lord, you don't, you don't even just do it dutifully. You love us rejoicing. The Bible says you're like a, you're like a man who lost a sheep and went out and searched everywhere for it. And when he brought it back, rejoiced with his friends, called a party together. Well, in heaven, there's a party at the salvation of sinners and at the transformation of God's people into the likeness of Jesus. We deserve so little and yet, yet you give so much. We pray, Lord, that you'd build us in faith. Help us to trust in your love, to deny the lie that you are waiting to condemn us if we would come to you, or that you are waiting to destroy our lives and take away our joy if we would come to you. Help us to believe the truth that in your love you would fill us and care for us and shepherd us even through eternity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.